Thanks for tuning into the Tomb Creepypasta podcast. Um, I realize that I've never actually given an introduction, so uh, here it is. Uh, my name's Tucker. I've been reading Creepypasta. <laughs> my my cat's running into the mic. I've been reading uh, Creepypasta for the better part of about 11 years now, and uh, I've always been fascinated by the genre specifically because of its uh, ability to create suspension of disbelief. So I decided a while back to start doing these things where I uh, read them for people who may not have the time to sit down and read something on the internet for an extended period for any number of reasons. So uh, I hope that you guys enjoy what I do and uh, see what we can do with this. Thanks for joining. Tonight's first story is one of my favorites. It's a very old one. It's a classic, and a lot of you are probably familiar with it if you've been involved in this genre for a little bit. It's called The Rake. During the summer of 2003, events in the northeastern United States involving a strange human-like creature sparked brief local media interest before an apparent blackout was enacted. Little or no information was left intact, as most online and written accounts of the creature were mysteriously destroyed. Primarily focused in rural New York State, and once found in Idaho, self-proclaimed witnesses told stories of their encounters of the creature of unknown origin. Emotions ranged from extremely traumatic levels of fright and discomfort to an almost childlike sense of playfulness and curiosity. While their published versions are no longer on record, the memories remain powerful. Several of the involved parties began looking for answers that year. In early 2006, the collaboration had accumulated nearly two dozen documents dating between the 12th century and the present day, spanning four continents. In almost all cases, the stories were identical. I've been in contact with a member of this group and was able to get some excerpts from their upcoming book. A Suicide Note, 1964 As I prepare to take my life, I feel it necessary to assuage any guilt or pain I have introduced through this act. It is not the fault of anyone other than him. For once I awoke and felt his presence, and once I awoke and saw his form. Once again I awoke and heard his voice, and looked into his eyes. I cannot sleep without fear of what I might next awake to experience. I cannot ever wake. Goodbye. Found in the same wooden box were two empty envelopes addressed to William and Rose, and one loose personal letter with no envelope. Dearest Lenny, I have prayed for you. He spoke your name. A journal entry, translated from Spanish, 1880. I have experienced the greatest horror. I have experienced the greatest horror. I have experienced the greatest horror. I see his eyes when I close mine. They are hollow, black. They saw me and pierced me. His wet hand, I will not sleep. His voice. Mariner's Log, 1691. He came to me in my sleep, from the foot of my bed. I felt a sensation. He took everything. We must return to England. We will not return here again at the request of the rake. From a witness, 2006. Three years ago, I had just returned from a trip to Niagara Falls with my family for the 4th of July. We were all very exhausted after a long day of driving, 
so my husband and I put the kids to bed and called it a night. At about 4 a.m., I woke up thinking my husband had gotten up to use the restroom. I used the moment to steal back the sheets, only to wake him in the process. I apologized and told him I thought that he'd gotten out of bed. When he turned to face me, he gasped and pulled his feet up from the end of the bed so quickly his knee almost knocked me out of the bed. He then grabbed me and said nothing. After adjusting to the dark for a half a second, I was able to see what caused the strange reaction. At the foot of the bed and facing away from us, there was what appeared to be a naked man, or a large, hairless dog of some sort. Its body position was disturbing and unnatural, as if it had been hit by a car or something. For some reason, I was not instantly frightened by it, but more concerned as to its condition. At this point, I was somewhat under the assumption that we were supposed to help him. My husband was peering over his arm and knee, tucked into the fetal position, occasionally glancing at me before returning to the creature. In a flurry of motion, the creature scrambled around the side of the bed and then crawled quickly in a flailing sort of motion right along the bed until it was less than a foot from my husband's face. The creature was completely silent for about 30 seconds, or probably closer to 5, it just seemed like a while, just looking at my husband. The creature then placed its hand on his knee and ran into the hallway leading to the kids' rooms. I screamed and ran for the light switch, planning to stop him before he hurt my children. When I got to the hallway, the light from the bedroom was enough to see it crouching and hunched over about 20 feet away. He turned around and looked directly at me, covered in blood. I flipped the switch on the wall and saw my daughter Clara. The creature ran down the stairs while my husband and I rushed to help our daughter. She was very badly injured and spoke only once more in her short life. She said, He is the rake. My husband drove his car into a lake that night while rushing our daughter to the hospital. They did not survive. Being a small town, news got around pretty quickly. The police were helpful at first, and the local newspaper took a lot of interest as well. However, the story was never published, and the local television news never followed up either. For several months, my son Justin and I stayed in a hotel near my parents' house. After we decided to return home, I began looking for answers myself. I eventually located a man the next town over who had a similar story. We got in contact and began talking about our experiences. He knew of two other people in New York who had also seen the creature we now referred to as the Rake. It took the four of us about two solid years of hunting on the internet and writing letters to come up with a small collection of what we believe to be accounts of the Rake. None of them give any details, history, or follow-up. One journal had an entry involving the creature in its first three pages and then never mentioned it again. A ship's log explained nothing of the encounter, saying only that they were told to leave by the rake. That was the last entry in the log. There were, however, many instances where the creature's visit was one of a series of visits with the same person. Multiple people also mentioned being spoken to, my daughter included. This led us to wonder if the rake had visited any of us before our last encounter. I set up a digital recorder near my bed and left it running all night, every night, for two weeks. I would tediously scan through the sounds of me rolling around on my bed each day when I woke up. By the end of the second week, I was quite used to the occasional sound of sleep while blurring through the recording at eight times the normal speed. This still took almost an hour every day. On the first day of the third week, I thought I heard something different. What I found was a shrill voice. It was the rake. I can't listen to it long enough to begin to transcribe it. I haven't let anyone listen to it yet. All I know is that I've heard it before, and now I believe that it spoke when I was sitting in front of my husband. I don't remember hearing anything at the time, but for some reason the voice in the recorder immediately brings me back to that moment. The thoughts that must have gone through my daughter's head make me very upset. 
I have not seen the rake since he ruined my life, but I know he has been in my room while I slept. I know and fear that one night I'll wake up to see him staring at me. Tonight's next story is entitled The Pornography Game. He designed the system on basic human decency, and it failed almost immediately. Such abuses of goodwill have plagued mankind as far back as history goes, and as recently as the DIY video rental fiasco at the local water park. In hindsight, the idea for the do-it-yourself video rental could hardly be described more positively than absurd and utterly stupid. He created the system after video rentals lost their prominence in the last-ditch effort to squeeze out any remaining revenue from tapes that we still own. Essentially, the system operated like a lending library with a tip jar set out. Murphy, my boss and the mastermind behind the project, emptied the tip jar into the register every evening. From my vantage point, working as cashier, I could observe just how pathetically minuscule the daily profits were compared to the water parks. People just refused to pay when they weren't supervised. Even from the start, I had never been on board with the idea. When he first suggested it, I had voiced concerns that people wouldn't respect the rules. Murphy responded that, If we treat the customers like children, they'll behave like children. But if we treat them like adults, they'll behave justly. I suppose that's a nice sentimentality, but it entirely failed to account for teenagers. In addition to consistently checking out movies without paying, local high school kids would also take it upon themselves to relieve our stock of children's movies and adult films. Then they would swap the tapes and return them to the shelves. I heard that they called it the pornography game. After a long series of customer complaints, Murphy bestowed upon me the honorary title of Video Rental Quality Assurance Manager. As such, I got the check that every tape contained the right movie. Despite being hired as a cashier at a water park, I now found myself digging through old videotapes for a living. It didn't take long for the teenagers to adjust their game accordingly. They began writing over the tapes themselves, instead of just swapping the cases. So I would have to physically watch every movie to guarantee that nothing had been altered. Because they would sometimes just change out the audio or tamper with the final scenes of the films, I constantly had to view the entirety of the films with sound to ensure their quality. I tried persuading Murphy to drop the project as he was losing money with me doing the rental full time, but he would hear none of it. It seemed utterly stupid that I couldn't just run the place like any other rental store or stop the teenagers if they checked out their movies, but Murphy remained adamant in his resolve and seemed to think that such a thing would just go against the spirit of the project. The DIY rental was his idea, and we'd all be damned if it didn't work just fine. Surely the project could function if Murphy would ditch either the porn or the children's movies, but he still refused, informing me that those were the only two kinds of films ever rented. And thus my days went by, watching old children's shows and dated pornography. Of both genres, I memorized every movie in our catalog. I knew every line before it was spoken, every character before they appeared, and every fuck before it was given. I would sit in the back of the rental area, scornfully watching every teenager check out their products. My lips moved subconsciously along with the dialogue. I began to work late into the evenings, growing embarrassed when customers, whom I often knew, observed me watching pornography for a living. My hours drifted later and later into the night until I would arrive after the water park itself closed just to watch the videos. I kept tabs on when each video was checked out in return, so I only had to watch the newly returned ones. Generally, that was about four movies a night. My schedule flipped to accommodate working a night shift. I slept during the days just to show up in time for work. 
I'd be lying if I said I hadn't considered ditching work entirely and pretending to have watched the videos, but Murphy religiously watched the security tapes and would know if I slacked off even for one night. Murphy had meant for me to throw away the tapes once I'd found they'd been altered, but so much effort had been placed into editing them, I would honestly feel guilty if I didn't watch them to completion. I wondered how the teenagers possessed such patience to keep editing the damn videos. When I was at that age, I could never have worked so hard at something with so little payoff. The teenagers gradually revealed themselves to be adept opponents, splicing more and more obscure moments of the films together. I burst out laughing every time a woman would moan an orgasm, only for her voice to morph jarringly into Woody the Woodpecker's laugh. One particularly twisted editor altered an entire Spongebob episode to include swinging yellow-colored penises every few minutes. Some of the edits were just strange. One guy kept bleaching out the porn star's faces in the films so that the movie would show these eerie white blobs in place of their heads. Another time I found a copy of The Lion King where a distorted female voice would constantly screech the word rape throughout. I wanted to meet the people editing the tapes. They seemed like a curious bunch. At least six months ticked by that I had spent playing that end of the pornography game. Six months of meticulous searching and fixing what I could. I developed quite the coffee addiction while sitting alone in the small office we called Video Rental. My dim, single-bulb light cast its lonely beams out into the darkened building as the bleached-out humans lurched on my television screen. Sometimes I could swear I could hear noises coming from outside, and I would scurry into the main office to watch the security feeds. The grounds were always still. Just an empty water park. I honestly can't say why I got so jumpy all the time. There was no money in the registers to steal or anything. There's really no reason at all anybody would ever want to break into the place. Still, my mind couldn't lose the notion that something watched me. The paranoid feeling became stronger than ever when I arrived particularly late one Tuesday night. It must have been around 2 in the morning once my car pulled into the parking lot. I frowned to myself when my headlights shone on rows after rows of cars. Why were people still around at this hour? Nervously, I drove my car at a crawling pace to the nearest parking spot. I eventually convinced myself that Murphy must have rented out the lot or something, and I stepped gingerly out of my car and into the cold night air. I couldn't help but glance into the car windows to confirm that they were empty. Timidly, I walked by the numerous rows of cars, with clouds blocking out any moonlight. I felt my way to the entrance. Light leaked out from below the door crack. My muscles tightened when I slowly opened the door. Bright interior lights stung my eyes. They took a moment to adjust, in time showing the empty inside of the building. There was nobody there, but everything had been left out as though people had left in a hurry. Food and drinks sat on the table, the registers were open and exposed money, and a soft buzz of television static flickered through the stale air. I called out sheepishly to see if anybody was still around. Silence. With the hairs on the back of my neck standing fully erect, I went to the back room to check the security feeds. Each nook and corner taunted my nerve. Every shadow insulted my weakened bravery. To my surprise, I couldn't find any tapes once I entered the security room. Just a cooling mug of coffee, some old magazines, and a knocked-over ashtray. A ceiling fan spun slowly overhead as I paced towards the rental area. Indoor lights blocked out any visibility from the windows, concealing the outside with my reflection. I looked at my mirror image with distrust, sensing that something watched me from the other side of the glass. Turning away from the entrance, I scanned quickly over the movies, constantly looking back over my shoulder. Wind whistled through the door left hanging ajar from when I had entered. Quickly, I found that only a single tape had been moved in the rental stock, The Jungle Book. 
I grabbed the VHS, planning to get the hell out of there and watch the video at home, but the tape slid non-cooperatively out of the packaging and landed with a sharp crack on the floor. A moment hung over while I stared at the naked tape in confusion. It was the security tape from just before closing. Somewhat shaking, I pressed the tape into the VCR and watched the static-filled television screen cut to video feed. I saw a grainy, black-and-white overhead view of the large pool. The place seemed pretty crowded with kids splashing around happily in the water. Parents chatted and lounged around the edge of the pool, and I could just barely make out a lifeguard station. I glanced behind me towards the door and windows. After some hesitation, I turned back to the television. The timestamp on the corner of the screen set the time to be around 5.30 as everybody went about their business around the pool. I watched the tape with uneasy curiosity until the time hit 6 p.m. At precisely 6 o'clock, everybody froze. The children stopped playing, the parents stopped talking, and the lifeguards stopped watching. Everybody's face shot up towards the sky. They stood in shock, as though unable to comprehend what they were seeing. Then, at practically the same time, they all lost their shit, running around and screaming in every direction. They fought chaotically to get out of the water like a pack of drowning rats. The children clawed and bit at each other in a feral frenzy to escape from the pool. It's impossible to describe the sheer terror in their eyes as they fled from the water. Neither the lifeguard nor the parents tried to help the kids in any way. They just screamed and sprinted off out of frame. Before even a minute had passed, the shot was of an empty pool. At five after six, the video cut to static. After I left the shop and reported the incident to Murphy, we promptly contacted the authorities. A few men in suits spoke to me privately, and after I told them everything I saw, they essentially banned me from ever asking about or visiting the water park ever again. I've tried to talk to Murphy about it, but he seemingly dropped off the face of the earth since I told him about the tape. Nobody ever published any findings on the disappearances, I've never found any of the people who edited the movies, and no traces of the park goers or the employees who vanished have ever turned up. Even to this day. I never learned how the tape ended up in the rental area, or where the rest of the tapes went off to. Really, I barely know anything at all about what happened aside from what I saw with my own eyes. All the unknowns have been driving me mad since, and I'm not alone. For the few weeks following the event, random people in town would just break down crying and shaking. Their faces keep me from sleeping soundly, eating in peace, or even holding down a steady job. Even more than their despair-ridden expressions, though, one question in particular has always bothered me the most. On the tape, what were all those people looking up at? The final story for the evening is entitled Unit 731. I was always interested in being a Nazi hunter. I kept watching and re-watching The Boys from Brazil, for one, so I guess it was more of a hobby combined with a flight of fancy. It turned out that Nazi hunting thing was uh, done and dealt with. I was born a little late for that craze. Still, I kept researching, just as a side hobby. Operation Paperclip in particular continued to fascinate me. Many former Nazi scientists were recruited after the war by the United States and given full pardons. This was no great secret, and many such scientists were well-known, Von Braun and Heisenberg being the two prime examples. I eventually started to wonder, however, it is known that German scientists had been brought in, but what about the rest of the Axis? Surely they had some sort of scientific research that the United States would have found valuable. Italy turned out to be a dead end, I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised. Japan, on the other hand, oh, Japan, 
was apparently seriously invested in biological warfare. Military facilities with innocuous names like War Horse Disease Prevention Shop and Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department were set up throughout occupied China in particular. The first facility was home to the rather infamous Unit 731 and later Unit 100, both of which were involved in terrible things. Human experimentation, cultivation of plagues, and other bioweapons on civilians were all commonplace. They had plenty of involuntary test subjects, after all. Chinese civilians within the occupied zone were deemed expendable. But I was interested in the aftermath, not the war, so I'd had to dig a little more. Since the Cold War is well over, more things were being declassified, mostly useless white noise, but a few interesting tidbits emerged. There are practically no records on Unit 731 or Unit 100 during World War II. I have no idea if none were ever taken, or if they were all destroyed at the end of the war. Shiro Ishii, Masaji Kitano, and Masami Kitaoka are the three names that I managed to dig out of the scant records that I could find, and most of that was from post-war investigations and testimonies. So what happened to them after the war? First of all, all members of Unit 731 and most members of Unit 100 were given full pardons for war crimes by the same people responsible for Operation Paperclip. By far the easiest to track of these was Lieutenant Masami Kitaoka. He was arrested in 1956 after it was discovered that he had been using his work at the National Institute of Health Services to infect patients with different diseases. His victims were mostly mental health patients whose testimonies wouldn't be believed. When the authorities arrived to arrest him on March 23, 1956, the official report simply listed, suspect dead, natural causes. The exact natural cause is unknown, as is the specific time of death, but this is far too convenient to be a coincidence. For one, his actions were organized and performed with care to the extent that it would have taken the work of at least one seasoned researcher, especially considering that it was all done in a clandestine manner. If Ishii wasn't involved in this from the beginning, he was almost certainly responsible for silencing Kitaoka. Ishii and Kitano were much more difficult to track down than their subordinate Kitaoka, and each clue was only found after a good deal of research. I got a little uh, obsessed is too strong of a word, but it was interesting. Kitano and Ishii were both pardoned for all war crimes in return for their research. After they had been thoroughly debriefed, they were released by the CIA and went their separate ways. Kitano remained in Japan, but Ishii went to America soon after, and that's where the official story ends, and where my story gets more odd. Kitano practically vanished. No official record, nothing. The best that I could find was a rough KGB report that a Lieutenant General Kitano was at large in Japan. The CIA, however, was much more thorough. The declassified reports that I dug up reported that one Dr. Ishii was consulted for research at Fort Detrick, dated 1947. Fort Detrick is fairly notorious as well for being an experimentation center for biomed research. Thinking that this was part of the clause for his pardon, I had assumed that the CIA or some other agency had placed him there, but it seems that he was actually there of his own accord. Knowing Ishii's habits, I went and dug up old medical records for Fort Detrick. Most of it was irrelevant, but then I managed to extract the files for psychiatric wardens. Back then, doctors didn't realize that PTSD existed, and as such wrote it off as a form of insanity. Such was the diagnosis of one Private Richards. February 17, 1947. Subject describing vivid memories is often agitated, running mild fever. Keeps insisting that he's being tortured by a jab. Probably another one of his flashbacks, but according to his records, Richards was never listed as a POW. March 2nd, 1947. Richards is getting worse. Classify as insane and transferred to solitary confinement. He assaulted one of the nurses, claiming that the poor man was his tormentor. 
evidently on the sole basis that the victim was of Japanese descent. Had to apologize to the man in person. I didn't recognize him, though. Odd, I thought I knew everyone. March 5th, 1947, 0800 hours. Subject dead, natural causes. Symptoms leading to death similar to typhus, though subject's records show no illness. I'll have to track down the nurse. The case file fit neatly within Ishii's known profile, experimenting on people who were deemed too insane or unstable to testify against him. An afternote in a review of convicted war criminals described Ishii as running a clinic in Japan where he performed examinations and vaccinations for free. It was dated 1948. It seems likely to me that this actually was Kitano, although it's entirely possible, if not probable, that Ishii was spotted visiting his colleague at the clinic. The free examinations and vaccinations were far from philanthropic. It was simply a way to lure the poor in to use as test subjects without their knowledge. This seems to be confirmed with a few stray reports of death from disease that simply don't make sense. In some cases, the onset was too sudden, and in others, unheard of strains would appear as if from nowhere within isolated communities. I initially continued to search for Ishii within documents detailing Project MK-Ultra, but after a while, I realized that I had been distracted from the main trail by unfounded rumor and hearsay. That being said, I lost track of him for a while. It was not all for naught, though, however, as I discovered a photocopy of a Japanese newspaper article from 1961 supposedly linking Kitano to the CIA. The article described how a man posing as a health official arrived at a small government office in Fukuoka and gave the six employees present antibiotics in the form of pills. While it's impossible to be certain, it seems to me that the actual content of the pills was a toxin isolated from the Burkhold area Malay bacteria. The pills caused convulsions and blood poisoning leading to shock, which killed two and hospitalized the remaining four. Supposedly $25,000 was stolen, and it was written off, poorly, as a robbery. The exotic substance that would have had to have been used led me to believe that Kitano, active in the area, was responsible. Unable to find the details of which office was burglarized, I could only guess as to why such a risky operation was carried out in this fashion. Things went quiet again, for a while, and then in the late 1980s, Green Cross, a pharmaceutical company based in Japan, was accused of distributing blood known to be contaminated with HIV. Up to 3,000 individuals were receiving tainted blood transfusions. While researching this, I found a small fringe site run by a Japanese whistleblower which cast a new light in what had seemed to be an unrelated event. According to evidence he brought forth, the tainted blood was not only known as such, but specifically marked as such. All blood that tested positive for HIV contamination was from lot number 18440B. Of the 800 documented cases in which individuals received blood transfusions of this lot number, 432 contracted the HIV virus. The common claim was that this scandal was a result of poor quality control, but this lot was specifically tracked with records of recipients. Other lot number records show that this was far from common practice. Kitano was still alive when the infected blood was distributed and deeply involved in Green Cross. Indeed, he was a founder of the company. I found it hard to believe that this was a coincidence, but his name was never mentioned. He was reported dead in a car accident soon after, another impossibly convenient coincidence. In 2008, Dr. Radovan Karadzic, a wanted war criminal for his participation in the Bosnian War, was finally arrested. He had been hiding from the authorities using falsified identification showing him to be a Dr. Dragan David Dabic and ran a small clinic specializing in alternative medicine. A small-time reporter went to all-known patients of Dabic. A recurring theme emerged. Of the 12 patients interviewed, 
Eleven reported that they were surprised at how wealthy Davich seemed, considering his employment. Seven reported being attended to by a foreign nurse. Four had died of diseases. But who was this nurse? Shiro Ishii and Masaji Kitano were surely dead by now. They would have been over a hundred years old. Both Ishii and Kitano ran clinics. They must have had nurses. Successors? But what was the motivation of the two men? Misplaced and warped patriotism for a long-dead empire? Money? Power? Or perhaps it was the only life they knew? I don't know. And at this point, I don't ever want to know. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Tomb Creepypasta podcast. I had to take a little bit of time off to work on some band things, but we should be getting back to an actual bi-weekly schedule now. So, that being said, thank you, and good night.